The text for the sermon this afternoon is taken from Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to look at the first six verses of that chapter. So Ephesians 5, the verses 1 through 6. There God's word says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So far. And after the proclamation of God's word, we're going to sing together from Psalm 73, verse 8. Dear brothers and sisters, congregation loved by the Lord Jesus Christ, this morning we heard a little bit from Ephesians 1 about our identity and our purpose in Christ Jesus. God chose us before the foundation of the world that we might be his people. As a great act of love, he adopted us into his family, he redeemed us from our sins, he promised us an eternal future, and he also gave us a Holy Spirit as a foretaste of this glorious future that's in store for us. And then when you go on to Ephesians chapter 2, then the Apostle Paul, he begins to work that out for us. He says, by nature, we're dead in sin. We are those people who we don't have a natural knowledge of God and we don't have an inclination to serve God, but by nature, we, we serve ourselves and we live in sin. But when we are dead in sin, he says, God made us alive in Christ. And he seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. And so he, he already gives us the ability to begin to live as his people in gratitude to him for the riches of his grace. Well, in chapter 3, he, he tells us, or in the rest of chapter 2 and chapter 3, he tells us about how he works that out for us. God brings Jews and Greeks, or sorry, Jews and Gentiles together into unity within his church. And then he prays that we understand what, it, what he has done for us. And then when you get to the last half of the book, then he starts working out what that means for us. Since the Lord has done such great things for us, he now calls us to live a life of service and gratitude before him. In chapter 4, he says, the first way we show that we know him and that we live out of his grace is by pursuing unity within his church. And then in chapter 5... He says, the other way that you show that you know God and that you love him is by imitating him, by walking in love as he walked in love, and by fleeing from your sin and seeking to do what's good and right before him. And then he kind of works that out in a bunch of different ways. We're going to look at it, some of those ways in our passage. And then after that, he, he tells us about how his people, they, 
They walk in love for one another. They flee from drunkenness. They're filled with the Spirit. They sing songs of gratitude, and they fulfill the obligations of the relationships that they have. So you have a beautiful marriage relationship. You have a beautiful relationship as husband and wife and as parents and children. And you also flee from sin. He, he ends off the book talking about the, the way that we're engaged in spiritual warfare and how we need to rely upon Christ to be able to, to do this warfare. Well, the section we're going to look at this afternoon is the first verses of chapter 5. Where he calls us to live in love. And he calls us to flee from sin. And so I summarized the text this afternoon with these words, our Lord calls us to live out our new identity in Christ. We're going to, in the first place, we're called to imitate God's love, and secondly, to also flee from sin. So our text starts off with these words, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. I want you to imitate me. And what does that mean? Well, he says in the rest of the verse, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Since I have done so much for you, since I've adopted you and chosen you and forgiven you and renewed you, I want you to, to love as I have loved you. You are to imitate me. You are to walk in love as you've experienced my love. The language here is it's reminiscent. You have to walk, you have to imitate, you have to follow the footprints of another. Lord Jesus Christ, he's walking in the snow or he's walking down a beach and he leaves some footprints in the sand and he wants you to walk in those footprints to do the same kinds of things that he has done. And what's the track that, that he's laid for us? This is the foundational thing is that he says, I would like you to love others as I have loved you. He reminds us first in verse 1 that we are his beloved children, that he's entered into a familial relationship with us, where we're his family, where he's adopted us, and where he has this, this closeness with us. When you come into a family context, then it's safe, and it's comfortable, and the the parents, they, they care for their children, they provide their children, and they protect their children. It's in verse 2 that God tells out, spells out for us what it looks like. He tells us there that Christ loved us by giving himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And the language here is important. When it talks here about a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God, that's reminiscent of the Old Testament sacrificial system. An offering, a sacrifice, this is what the Israelites brought to God in order to be restored to him because of their, because of their sin. Our Lord Jesus Christ, he, he did that. He made that sacrifice. He offered himself before God in order to restore us to him. And the Apostle Paul, he just wants, to take, he wants us to take a moment to reflect on that. If you, you think about God's attitude towards you, then he's building off of what chapter 1 says. He's saying you are his beloved children. And he showed his love for you by giving what's most precious to him in order to be restored in a relationship with you. You are a sinner. And you deserve wrath. 
because of your sins, God deserves to, to pay, that you pay. And he says, your payment must be an offering. It must be a sacrifice. You must pay with blood. The only thing that atones for sin is the payment of blood. And then Jesus Christ steps up and he says, but I'll do it. I'll make the payment. I'll stand in place of these people and I'll give my, my blood in their stead. It reminds you of the passage John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And that's really what he's, he's telling us here. He loves us with the greatest love because he's done the greatest thing for us. Well, if you think about that, brothers and sisters, and at core, what, what the Lord wants you to do is to reflect on that love and to imitate that. That you also lay down your life as a sacrifice of love to him. Now, usually, you know, the ultimate sacrifice of giving your life, that's not asked of many of us. You know, if you're in warfare, if you're engaging in war, and maybe that one stage that, you know, that you stand in the way for a friend or for your comrade, and that you die in his stead. You know, it could happen. You have an accident, and someone rescues another person out of a burning vehicle, and they die from the, from the burn wounds that they receive, and they end up saving their friend who they pulled out of the vehicle. But it rarely happens. That kind of a thing rarely happens within our context. And yet, that's the ultimate calling. And so in the meantime, the Lord says, what I want you to do is I want you to, to make the sacrifice, maybe not in the ultimate way, but in a thousand little ways. In all the little normal interactions in life that you're willing to live a life of service and to sacrifice yourself for others as I've sacrificed myself for you. And then he spells it out. It's really interesting if you, you look at how this passage starts, then the very first word of our text is the word therefore. He's tying it back with what was before. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And what he's tying into is what he said just in the verses just prior to this. Ephesians 4.32, that the calling is, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And so really what he's saying here, when he's saying, I want you to walk in love, I want you to sacrifice yourself in love for other people, he's saying the foundational way in which that comes to expression is that you're kind to each other, that you are tender-hearted in your dealings with each other, and that you are willing to forgive one another as I have forgiven you. That's quite a calling. To be really kind, to be tender-hearted, to be willing to forgive. Now, so often, we think of the, the justice of our position. We think that we're right. We think that we are in the right, that other people should bend according to what we think or, or what our opinion is. If we have a breakdown in a relationship, that many times we think that the other person has offended us, and that they need to come to us and they need to do whatever it takes in order for things to be set right. 
And yet the impetus here in the passage is in what we do. God's saying, I've loved you. I've loved you so much that I sent my son to die for you. We heard it this morning. Christ came to redeem us from our sins. He's willing to sacrifice himself so that we could be rescued from slavery to, to sin and death. And now he's saying to us, as I have rescued you, as I have forgiven you, and I call you to, to love one another and to express that by being willing to forgive each other, by being really kind in your dealings with each other. When you think about it, brothers and sisters, how much hasn't the Lord forgiven you? Isn't it true that we all have this mountain of sin behind us? We have our own characters. We have our own besetting sins. So many ways in which we naturally fall into sin over and over again. We have these sins of youth. And sometimes they, they've had a lot more power in our lives than that we like to think about. It's especially when you get older, when you grow in spiritual maturity, then sometimes you look back at the past, you get to see the extent of the sin that you've committed before God. And then God says, it's not bad to reflect on that and to think about what I've done for you, the grace that I've extended to you in Christ. And he says, as you reflect on that, then also show that grace in your dealings with one another. It's really amazing. The, the Apostle Paul, he says, the truth is that you don't even understand how much I love you. God says that. Paul prays about it back in Ephesians 3. It's Ephesians 3, in the last verses of that chapter, he prays for the Ephesians, that God would fill them with his spirit, and that they would understand how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, that they would know that love. He says, I... The greatest thing I wish for you is that you understand how much God loves you, how much he's done for you. That's really God's wish for us today as well, that we understand how much he loves us, how much he's willing to do for you, how much he's willing to forgive you, how much he's willing to carry on with you. Because if you know that love, if you're secure in that love, then that's the basis for all of life, that you have the foundation for the rest of life. As you are loved, then you can love. As you've forgiven, then you can forgive. As you've received, so you can also give. And that's the greatest gift that God wishes to give you and for you to live out of. But what it means for us today, brothers and sisters, is the Lord saying to you, he's saying, don't hold back from others. Don't be suspicious of others. Don't see the worst in others. But he's saying be kind and compassionate. Know one another. Know the joys and know the struggles. And walk the journey and love each other. Don't focus all your attention on the injustices that you've experienced. Don't hold on to your anger against the things that have happened against you. But rather, God says, focus on my grace and let that fill your heart with love and tenderness to the people around you. Well, the other way that your life is going to change if you understand the extent of God's grace to you is that you're also 
going to want to flee from your sins. If you know what God has done for you, then you don't want to offend him. If you know what Christ has done for you, you don't want to make him suffer anymore. It says you, you understand his grace and kindness, that you're going to do everything in your power to live in a way that pleases him, and that honors him, that brings him glory. And it's in verse 3 and following that the Apostle Paul, he spells out what that looks like in real life. He says there, but all sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. We don't don't usually use that language, must not be named among you. There's another translation that says, there must not be a hint of sexual immorality or covetousness. Not a hint. None at all. God's people don't live sexually immoral lives. They live in purity. The word for sexual immorality here, it's it's a more general word refers to adultery, but it's also broader than that. It's basically referring to any kind of sexually illicit kind of experiences. And the word for impurity here, it's used in the Old Testament to refer to ritual impurity or to uncleanness. Well, here in the New Testament, it's often used in conjunction with the general word for sexual impurity, and so often it's used within a sexual connotation. And so what the Lord is really saying here is he's saying you need to flee from any kind of sexual sin. And the context, again, is important here. Paul's talking to the Ephesians. You have to understand that in the Roman worldview of this time, for the Ephesians at this time, sexual immorality was a normal part of everyday life. There's a lot of people who went to prostitutes. There's a lot of men who had slaves. They also had slave girls. And it was not uncommon that a man would sleep together with his slave. It was at this time that homosexuality was a normal part of everyday life. Many people, they they viewed it as an act of worship. You would go to the temple of your God, you would sleep together with one of the prostitutes, and that was one of the ways in which you honored and worshipped your God. And they had a number of these feast days in which, like the one, probably the worst one, they had the the feast for the goddess of, of wine. Well, the feast day was getting drunk, and the height of of worship was to do anything that was illicit. As long as you did whatever um, that was against any kind of law or any kind of boundary, then you were worshiping your God in a greater way. And so the whole intention in worshiping your God was to commit whatever kind of, of unlawful thing that you ever wanted to do. And oftentimes, this had sexual connotations. Well, under the shadow of darkness, these people, they experienced, they gratified all kinds of illicit sexual desires with other people. It was truly demonic. It's the reason why when the Jews looked in on the Gentiles, these were absolute pagans. They especially looked at their sexual immorality, and they couldn't understand that these people could be included among the people of God. Well, it's in this context that the Lord says to his people, he says, that's not who you are. That's not the lifestyle that you live. You are my people, and I love you. And because I love you, he says, I want you to respond to that love, and so make sure that there's not even a hint of sexual immorality among you. The real 
the biblical context for the Lord saying this is that when you read through the scriptures, then one of the, the core things that the Lord teaches us in his word is that he says that sexuality is often connected to language for unity. The Lord limits it to marriage. And he says, when you, he says, I give you the gift of sexuality within marriage because this is something that leads to a very unique, profound bond of unity between husband and wife. It was right at the very beginning. The man will leave his father and mother. He'll be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. There's a profound unity that God intends within the marriage relationship, and and a part of that is the sexual unity that husband and wife have. And in the rest of Scripture, there's a lot of people who reflect on that. I think, for example, in Song of Solomon 2.16, my beloved is mine, and I am his. The woman says a little later again, chapter 7, verse 10, I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. And in both times, the context within which she says these things is a context of sexual intimacy. There's this exclusive intimacy, there's this unity that God gives to husband and wife in marriage, and he wants that to be protected. And so he tells his people, he says, not a hint of sexual immorality. That's also why the Apostle Paul, in the last verse of 1 Corinthians 6, he says, you should never get together with a prostitute. He says, that, that obliterates my intention. Don't you understand that if you get together with a prostitute, that you become one with her in body? But God says, you're one with me, with the Holy Spirit. So you can't do that. You can't be involved in that kind of thing. That's actually a great aspect of love that the Lord teaches us this. There's so much suffering, there's so much pain, so much sadness that come into the lives of those who commit sexual sin. It's after his wife has committed adultery that Solomon says for the hus- of the husband, Proverbs 6.34, for jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. It's not only true for marriage, it's also true for those who are not married so much lying, so much hiding, so many secrets. It's possible that you get addicted to pornography, that you want to stop, but you're just not able to do so. Over time, you get dragged into this world of increasing perversion. You sleep around with other people, and it leads to guilt and to shame, to insecurity. You lose your assurance of faith. David talks about that in Psalm 51. He prays with the Lord. He pleads with him. Please, please, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Don't leave me. Don't abandon me. And that's often the feeling that people have when they commit sexual sin. In Psalm 32, he talks about how his bones wasted away when he didn't confess his sins to the Lord. You know, brothers and sisters, it it was hard for them back in Ephesus, I'd submit to you, maybe it's even harder for us today. The Lord Jesus Christ, he teaches us in Matthew 5 that whoever looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his life, in his heart, sorry. If you think about that, you know, we live in a world where there's soft porn all around us. You go to the mall and you have these big posters, you turn on your television 
do some gaming, whatever the case may be. There's all these images where women are not wearing a lot of clothes. That's the context within which we live. We all have phones. Pull out your phone and it's so easy. If you want to find something, you can find something in no time. Do you know the numbers? They say one in three men, one in four women regularly use pornography. So what does that translate to? Hopefully in the church it's better. A real life. In our congregation in Southern River, we have 440 people. And what do the numbers say? We have more than 100 people who regularly use. In the end, that doesn't only leave profound damage to your relationships with other people, but at core, to your relationship with God. 1 Corinthians 6, the Lord tells us that every other sin you commit is outside of your body, but he says if you sin sexually, then you sin against your own body. But your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So the Lord says you can't do that. It's not who you are as my people. It's in verse 5 and 6 of our text, the Apostle Paul says, he says, you may be sure of this, that everyone who's sexually immoral or impure, that is, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. You can't continue this way, God says. He says, because of these things, his wrath comes on the sons of disobedience. If sexual sin has a place in your life today, brothers and sisters, then God's saying that you need to repent. You must change. You must confess your sin to the Lord. You must have a change of life. You have to humble yourself before your father. You have to plead with him for his grace and forgiveness. And he really puts a point to it. He says, if you don't, you're going to hell. The wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. So real life, what does it mean to repent? It means in the first place that you humble yourself before God. Then beyond that, that you humble yourself before the people who you've sinned against. You open your heart. You're honest about it. No more hiding. No more lying. No more secrets. But you come before God with an open hand, with open hearts, and you tell the Lord where you're really at and what the truth of your situation is. And you plead with him for his grace and forgiveness. You don't justify, you don't excuse, you don't minimize, you don't overlook. You're deeply honest. And you're willing to accept the consequences of your sin. Sin always has consequences. And when you repent, then you take responsibility for those consequences. You're willing to be held accountable. 
You're open with the office bearers. You're open with the person who's walking next to you. And you tell them the truth about what's really going on in your life. You let them know where it's really at. And then you also bear the consequences with the people who are affected. When you sin sexually, it does huge damage to other people. And so those people who have been affected by your sin, you humble yourself before them, you do what you can to set it right with them. If you're repentant, then you take responsibility, and you do whatever it takes to restore what's been broken. In real life, that often means significant patience, real self-denial, while you give people time to work through the consequences of the brokenness that you've brought into their lives. Well, you know, brothers and sisters, you hear about this, you could be thinking to yourself, well, that's the one thing I want most for myself. I know my sin. And I am guilty. And I want to change. And I've prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed to God that things would change for me. But nothing ever seems to be different. You know, this is one of the ways that God sometimes humbles us. Sometimes he doesn't immediately rescue us out of our sin so that we understand that he is God, that we need him, that we are utterly dependent upon him for his grace. It's when you realize the depths of your sin and your inability to, to beat it that you understand your need for a savior. And then you stand before him with empty hands and you say, Lord Jesus, you must do for me what I cannot do for myself. And the glorious promise is that God loves you and that he will redeem you, that he will forgive you for Jesus' sake and he will renew you. In Ephesians 2, God, God tells the Ephesians, that's the whole point here, the whole point of the book is that you understand who you are in Christ. It's back in Ephesians 2, after telling us about how we're dead in sin, we're dead, we're unable to flee from it. Then the very next verse is Ephesians 2, verse 4, 5, 6. The Apostle Paul says that you have been made alive in Christ. And then he uses this language. It's really quite amazing what he says. He says you've been seated with him in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority. You have been seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Well, this is something that happens after we die and after we rise again and after we we are glorified. That's the time when we will be seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. But God's saying that's so certain that already today he talks about it as if it's already happened. Your life is secure in Jesus Christ. As you believe in him as your savior, he will rescue you from your sins. He will do for you what you can never do for yourself. That's the core message of the gospel. That's the the heart of the message that Paul is trying to, to lay out for the Ephesians. You have been born again through faith in Jesus Christ. He is your Lord. No one else and nothing else has power in your life. He has the power, and he will rescue you because he loves you. Well, when you know that, brothers and sisters, 
that you can be secure in that love. It's a similar message that the Apostle Paul, he brings across time and again. He tells God's people in different places that this is the truth of their lives. We read just a moment ago from 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6, he spells it out. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. God has given you as a free gift the forgiveness of all your sins. He's made you alive in Christ. He lives in you with his Holy Spirit. He sets you free from the power of sin. There are lots of people who at one time were caught in the grip of sin, who've been set free as a free gift of God's grace, who live as the people of God in freedom from their sin. Well, this is the glorious message that the Lord wishes you to know and to reflect on, to be assured of his love for you in Christ. What's true for, for sexual sin is also true to the rest of life. The rest of our passage here, the Holy Spirit also tells us there should not even be a hint of covetousness or greed. He's saying, don't love money. Don't be greedy. Don't set your heart on the accumulation of wealth. Don't spend all your time thinking about money. It's in Luke 15, Luke 12, 15. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now again, this is one of the lies that our culture has fallen into. People today love money, and they spend their life trying to accumulate money. It's a given that everybody wants to be rich. Well, God says that's utterly incompatible with your new identity in Christ. He even says that it's idolatry. The Lord's standard is that there should not be a hint of this in our lives. Well, again, I ask you, brothers and sisters, how much of your life is devoted to the accumulation of wealth? How much energy, how much attention do you devote to making money? If you think about the work that you do, think about the the energy you put into your stock portfolio, your RSPs, your properties, your other investments. How much time do you spend looking at other people's beautiful homes, their decorating, all the things that they do, maybe Instagram, maybe Pinterest? Or how much time do you spend Kijiji or Marketplace looking at a new car or a new boat or something else? It's in Mark 4.19 that God tells us that some people hear the word, but that the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. There are some people who a desire for wealth, it grows and it grows and it gets bigger and it chokes out the word of God 
so that there's no space in people's lives for the word of God any longer. You know, when you're in the middle of life, you can justify it. We can all justify it. I'm being a good steward. I'm looking after my family. I'm doing what I need to do. But if your heart's not in a good place, then that shows too. And sometimes it happens that you're, you're a little older. You're in your 60s. You're in your 70s. You look back at one of your children, maybe a few of your children, and the accumulation of wealth is what drives their lives. And the word of God has been squished to a corner. Do you want to wait to that point to repent of your sin? The Lord loves us. And so he says, don't do that. Don't live like that. If you share in the world, if you share the pursuit of wealth of the world, then you'll share in the world's judgments. Revelation 18, he says, the day of judgment is coming on those who live this way. The time is coming when everyone who made the pursuit of wealth their God in life, they realize how empty it is. They will wail and mourn and lament because of the distress that comes upon them. In the next verse of our text, the Lord continues. He says, Nor should there be filthiness, foolish talk, or crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Don't have anything to do with obscenity. Your speech should be radically different from the people around you. If somebody who doesn't know you, has a conversation with you, in the first few minutes of conversation, they should figure out that you're different from most people in the world. Your language needs to reflect your identity in Christ. That's what God's saying here. If you do that, then in the end, then you'll, you'll testify to who God is and to what he does. It says here, no crude jokes. Literally, it, it actually it means to be witty, it's not just wittiness. The word crude, it also has sexual connotations. So don't, don't tell jokes that often have sexual connotations. It's really sad that the celebrities and the business leaders and the politicians, they're often lewd in their conversations. They don't set an example for us to follow. The Lord says these things are improper for God's holy people. They're set apart for him and for his service. So he calls us to show that in the life that we live. Well, if you think about these things, brothers and sisters, do you understand how our new identity in Christ, it leads us to a life that's radically different from the people around us? It's really a very kind thing that the Lord gives us this message. He wants to teach us who we are. He wants to teach us what it looks like to love him as he has loved us. As a great kindness, he, he spells out for us real life what it is. And if you... If you ever have a hard time really making sense of it and really understanding what it looks like on the ground, then probably the best thing you can do is consider the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. When our Lord Jesus came to this earth, it's really quite inconceivable that he would sin in any of these ways. You know, he didn't commit any kind of sexual sin. When you read through the scriptures, he only ever had appropriate relationships. He had many relationships with other women, but there are relationships of love and service where he cared for them, where he helped them, where he cast demons out of them, where he assisted them. 
He also, he never had an inappropriate attitude towards money. You know, he was, he understood that the whole world was his. Everything that the father had was his. And yet, he had to deny himself. He had to come into this world as a human being and he had to live like one of us. And so he never set his heart on the accumulation of wealth. He was, he was the one person who had nothing. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And that wasn't a hard thing for him. He accepted that, but the Father called him to do this. Actually, he did it for us. He lived with nothing because that's what we deserved. And so he lived a life in poverty so that he could give his riches to us so that we didn't have to experience the kind of life that we deserve. Instead of pursuing selfish or sinful desires, his heart was really filled with love for his father and for the people around him. Well, you know, if you, if you think of him, then you, then you see not just an example of what the father sets for you, but you see your savior who's done it for you. It's through his power that he recreates you into being a new person. And then if you, you live like him, if you're not striving or grabbing for things, but if you live in humble dependence upon your father, then you live the richest life that you ever could. Our father knows what's good for us. He knows how he made us. He knows what the blessed life looks like. And so he's teaching us here to walk in his ways. At core, he says, love me. Love me as I have loved you. And love the people around you as you have been loved. And if you are motivated by the love of God, if you understand that love, and if you live out of that love, then indeed you will flee from sin. You'll put it behind you. And you'll live a life of service before God, live a life of love with the people around you. And it's as we do so that the life of Christ is manifest in us, that we show ourselves to be his disciples, and that we live to the praise of his glory. Amen.